value propositions can be vague, aspirational, and ethics remote. Think Uber, the smartest way to get around. Apple iPhone, the experience is the product. Walmart, everyday low prices. Google, search engine for the world. Imagine these. XY Hospital, money-back guarantee. Acme Specialty Services, on-time appointments or we pay you. We Wish Think Tank, research for patients. People's Pharmacy, medications you can afford. I've heard people in healthcare say value equals quality plus patient experience over cost. Actually, all of this makes me crazy. We have no idea what cost means anywhere in healthcare. We spend too little time understanding quality to whom? Individuals when they're patients, caregivers, or clinicians, or groups of people, communities, or companies, insurers, employers, healthcare providers. Before we go any further, let me thank Joey Van Leeuwen, who creates the amazing music for my podcast, and Kayla Nelson, who serves as my web social media coach and produces the video trailers for my podcast. You transform my podcast from good to great. You add value. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. <music> Sarah Tragel von Geertroyden from the Partnership to Improve Patient Care introduced me to Jennifer Bright back in May while we were schmoozing about value in healthcare. I called Sarah because of my floundering to define value. I wanted to stop complaining and sink my teeth into something inspiring, possible, and grounded. Sarah sent me an article Jennifer wrote in Stat News. It's time to get healthcare value assessment right. I read her article and had a list of questions in five minutes. How can we motivate measurement development experts to test value measures for patients, caregivers, and payers that promote positive agency of diverse communities of patients? We can say what we don't want, but what do we actually want? How can we keep our fingers on the pulse of iterative improvement of partnerships with patients and caregivers? How can we better align the creation and funding of evidence-informed guidance, sometimes known as research, to answer people's questions? Jennifer Bright is passionate about prevention, access to care, and patient-family involvement in research and care delivery. She's Executive Director of the Innovation and Value Initiative, 
IVI, seeks to advance the science, practice, and use of value assessment in healthcare to make it more meaningful to those who receive, provide, and pay for care. IVI builds community to create rigorous, innovative, and relevant methods and translational research that facilitates patient-centered value. Let's meet Jennifer Bright. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. Sure, it's great to be here. When did you first realize that health was fragile? Oh my goodness. I think I shared with you that I came to this pretty early on in my life. When I was 18, both of my parents were diagnosed with stage four cancers within four months of each other. Suddenly my entire family was plunged into the unknown world of surgery and pathology reports and drug regimens and chemotherapy and radiation therapy and things that we just had never heard of. My father was in the army. So we were lucky to be in what was de facto the single payer system that the U.S. has. And so they were able to get immediate care, surgical care, whatever was needed Mm -hmm. was taken care of. The problem was neither of them were diagnosed early enough. And we had a as a family, a very rude awakening over the course of the next five years. Ultimately, my parents both passed away at the age of 50, really devastating cancers. We didn't really know what hit us, Mm. to be honest. So I, at a very early age, learned things, learned about the role reversal that happens. I learned about what it means to be a caregiver to a person who's dealing with a really acute and chronic illness. I learned about advanced directives. I learned about pathology reports. I learned all kinds of things that I never thought I would understand. The big takeaway for me is a lifelong passion about patient agency in healthcare, observing both my parents, how they approached their care and how they were, without even being instructed, they were really strong activists for themselves. My mother never had a meeting in which she didn't have a notebook and she was asking questions and taking down notes and challenging even what the doctors were telling her. And that left an impression on me. Mm -hmm. It also left an impression on me how little the family had a role or was told or was incorporated into decision-making. And the entire episode was happening to us. It wasn't something in which we were on a journey. We weren't acknowledged that we had opinions, fears, anything. And the other thing that it impressed upon me was the importance of prevention and thinking about what is the problem that we're really trying to solve in healthcare. I can't tell you the number of times doctors were writing scripts or suggesting interventions that were really um, traumatizing, I guess is the right word, without really understanding what was the impact on the family, on, on the individual. I watched my mother be you know, talked down to by several doctors who were diminishing her pain, her experience of pain, which turned out to be mes- metastatic breast cancer in her spine. So she was feeling pain, but a number of doctors told her that it was all in her head before we got it sorted. Mm. So these are all things that have stayed with me throughout my life cycle. And it's led to a 30 plus year career, really focusing on health policy. What's the intersection with with patients and with families and with their experience? Mm -hmm. And mostly I'm an agent for how do we make it better? How do we think about 
health policy and delivery and how we measure what health does for us in ways that actually matter to real people. That's been yes. foundational for me. That's, that's a great, thank you for that, which is leads to the reason we're talking is that I've been thinking a lot about value in healthcare. What is valuable and how do we measure value and value to whom? When I think about myself personally as a person with chronic illness is that I have I have certain goals and value to me is being able to meet those goals. I wanted to talk to you more about what you've learned about the different ways that people measure value in healthcare, in life, in technology. There's just so much I don't know. What I know is I'm not satisfied, but I can't take it much farther. I think one of the biggest problems right now is value is an overused word. Uh, And it's one that we've used so much that we don't quite know what we mean when we say it. And to to, to quote you, it's value to whom? And value is in the eye of the beholder. We hear that often. That's usually used to dismiss and to minimize perspectives that are that fall outside this very pristine kind of mathematical calculation of benefit versus risk and equals value. And and that's where I think we find ourselves most stuck in this country is we're focused on it from the standpoint of dollars and cents. And we are trying to overlay that viewpoint over top of a human experience that that values first and foremost what you've talked about, which is, can I play with my kids? Can I play my horn? Can mm-hmm. I go to work every day? Can I, can I live without pain or can I minimize the pain I'm experiencing? And those things are valuable to us as humans, as families, as people, but they're not the thing that's getting measured. They're not the thing that is top of mind. Why? Because it's more complicated because it's more, uh, individualized because it's harder to measure. As a measurement field, speaking of NQF, we've gone straight to what are the easy things to measure? We measure the heck out of processes and we can measure something in a mathematical way. Think functioning, the six minute walk test or, and so those measures become the primary and then everything else is a surrogate endpoint or a contextual consideration or some other diminutive terminology, but it's not held at the same level mm-hmm. of, of importance to the concept of value. Over the last three and a half years, I've been leading this initiative called the Innovation and Value Initiative. And I got involved in it because the first, when I first learned about it, the first thing I said was, this is really interesting. I wonder how They're looking at patient perspectives on value. What's important to the patient and how do we measure it in a cost-effectiveness economic modeling standpoint? Turns out they were the only ones trying to ask the question, why? And how do we do it better? And so that's why I've been at this table for the last three and a half years. And believe me, it is not easy business. We're talking about not only trying to identify what's important, those quality of life things that are important to patients, because we can't measure everything. Mm-hmm. will die under that burden. And then once we've decided what's important to measure, how do we go about measuring it in a way that is replicable, that's scientific, that people can 
you know, do, how can we do it in a way that's easier because we know that we're burdening healthcare providers, clinicians, hospitals with all this measurement that's happening. And then probably the most tricky part is what I call the magic math, which is all the calculations and the formulas and the black box theory that goes on in determining what picture do we get? when we talk about values. Yes, there's the business side of value, which is the dollars and cents, but I would argue right now that's probably too much in the driver's seat about the conversation about value. What we need to do is swing the pendulum a little bit and talk about these qualities that matter to patients and families and make sure that what we're doing is acknowledging and bringing those factors into the discussion and the measurement of value. Because if we don't take the opportunity to do that, I think we may come out with a economical answer that says, this is the lowest cost Mm -hmm. option. And that might serve our purposes from a business model standpoint, but it isn't necessarily going to lead to better health outcomes or better satisfaction within patients and families about the quality of their treatment. I think we can achieve better balance. I'll give you one example from my mother's treatment. So this was 30 years ago. She was taking oral morphine and it has enormous impact on the ability to interact, their wakefulness, their their ability to get rid of their bowels, their ability to get to be mobile, all of it. It was horrible. It was horribly debilitating. It changed her as a person. And she was on it and on it. And we happened to be, at least this is my understanding at the time, but because she was being treated at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, there was a study going on utilizing a port, innovative port for delivery of morphine straight into your bloodstream. And it wasn't oral. After many you know, weeks of of complaining about this, whatever, her oncologist got her into this study and she was able to get the port and it was transformative. Now, I will tell you from the context of this conversation, that port and that technology costs more than the oral morphine. So if you put that in context in today's decision-making, what patients are up against often is the difference between technology that can truly transform their life, not just from a pain management standpoint, but from a family interaction, from allowing our final weeks of time with that person to be lucid and memories and laughter and not a coma patient versus it's cheap, it's ready, and we will give you access to this option only. That's a great example. When I can't solve a problem, I try to go at it like in a totally different way. And sometimes when I think about value, I think about family caregivers instead of the patient. And I think about, even if you want to focus on money, it's like lost wages, increased illness. So it helps me reorient myself. I guess the COVID has really made me want to think, I'm a nurse, so I think about the you know, point of care clinicians as well. And I think about burnout and mental health and illness of our professional caregivers. And I I want that stuff to be part of value too. Yeah. And we're not measuring 
any of that. I'll give you some thoughts. There was a study I actually read this morning that a colleague shared with me, a study that looked at career impact of three different mental health conditions, bipolar disorder, depression, and schizophrenia. And it found that there was a measurable depression of career growth, so wages, of 34% just with the depression diagnosis. And it went all the way, I think the range went all the way up to 74% with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. That's huge. Yeah. Think about what we're doing to economic longevity of people by not diagnosing them early, by not focusing on preventive mental health care, why we wait until stage four, frankly, to treat people with mental illness is it makes no economic sense when we're talking about value. If you want to get down to dollars and cents, that is a really big case that nobody has been able to explain. And fair family caregivers, we've done work with rheumatoid arthritis, patient community, with other caregiver communities that talk about lost wages, talk about change. I chose my career path or I chose this job and I've stayed in this job with little growth because it's where I can get health insurance that will cover my medications. Mm -hmm. I had a RA patient say that they had to leave for disability purposes because their condition was so debilitating and they lost effectively 12 years of career wages in their profession as a result of not having adequate treatment um, for their illness. And this is the kind of stuff that gets under our skin, Danny, and mm -hmm. makes us say, how do we make it better? I okay, think so one of yeah, the ways- How do we yeah. make it better? So I know when I'm on this NQF cost and efficiency standing committee, and I bring up these issues and I say things like, we're looking for the keys we lost under the street light when we lost them in the dark alley, because that's where the light is. But I don't really feel like I have anything to offer to inform movement away from the way we do it now. So that's your business, right? That's what you're that's what you're trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I mentioned that the reason I joined IVI is because they had such a strong. Say again what that means, IVI. The Innovation and Value Initiative, or IVI. And okay. the reason I joined the organization was because I was really intrigued and impressed that they were really taking seriously the notion that a patient-centered focus needed to really guide us out of the woods, if you will. And so involvement of patient communities in our research, involvement of them in our governance, involvement of them in helping us think through what are the most important types of work for this organization to be working on, we take very seriously. But I think I, I have a couple of specific examples of things we're doing and where I think the field really needs to improve. Sure. So one example is something we say often, which is start with the patient and the family, if you want to be by extension. We really need to do a better job in the research community of understanding what is important to patients and families living with these conditions, whether it's an acute episode or a chronic illness or something rare. We are not doing a good job in the research community writ large of gathering information about what's important to those. What are the problems we're trying to solve? We have so that's entire, listening. You're talking about yeah, listening to those communities. Okay. That is going to yield a whole host of issues. 
But I think what then we need to be listening for is what are the signals? There are common things across all kinds of disease states that we need to be listening for and prioritizing. Like, for example, fatigue is a very common mm, mm-hmm. uh, experience oh, in knows. all kinds of disease states, but it varies. It varies in magnitude. It varies and it definitely varies in how we measure it. And it isn't always the most important factor. So it's finding that cross section of what's important to patients. How important is it? And are there connect points across disease Mm -hmm. where we can make maximum impact? If we're measuring this across all diseases, do we learn something that improves our conceptualization of value for everybody? Okay, so like loneliness, like pain. I'm just trying to think of what are some of I think fatigue is one that I hear uh often. Another is functioning, but of course that is going to differ depending Mm -hmm. on disease states about what that means and how would you measure it. Mm -hmm. Um, But for example, some criticism we've heard from patient communities is oftentimes functioning is something that's measured in a clinical trial, but it's not measured by using any standard that's relevant to the patient community. So, you know, standards, oh my goodness. So in the process of trying to standardize our measurement and how we measure quality, what we've done is find the least common denominator. And usually it's a process measure and it isn't necessarily one that's even correlated to what patients really experience. And then we, and then when patients have the audacity to point that out, what they get told is, but this is how we've always done it. And it's a validated measure and it's scientifically replicable and all the other terminology Mm -hmm. we use to kind of cut patients out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think we're at a point here in the U S where we need to just completely not start from scratch, but we need to lose that. This is the way we've always done it thinking. And one thing you'd see, for example, FDA has this patient focused drug development project, which they've been doing. And they just did a report where they self evaluated themselves. And they said, this has been important work. I think they need to go to the next step, which is take all that information that they, that they've gathered across 20 some odd conditions and find the signals, like what's unique Mm -hmm. among all these disease groups, but then what are some of the themes that cut across all of those reports Mm -hmm. and where does that lead us in terms of feedback to the health innovation complex, not just drugs, devices, diagnostics, all of it. Where do we give them marching orders that says, if you really want to materially make a dent in health outcomes, here are the five things that we that your research should include and should be able to demonstrate um, impact on. Mm-hmm. If we had started with that with a drug in COVID, for example, or if mm-hmm. we had started with that with a drug in the Alzheimer's space, would we be having a different conversation mm-hmm. now about the first therapy that's been available, you know, in the Alzheimer's space? And everybody has been waiting for so long, and families and patients are desperate for some kind of option. But what we didn't do was take the time and go back and make sure that the things we were measuring and the targets for that innovation aligned with what patients really needed. That's a mistake. Mm -hmm. And that's not an indictment of any actor in this Mm -hmm. whole chain. 
But if we're truly going to have a patient-centered health system, and if we're truly going to get to value, it's my fervent belief that we have got to start listening to the patient communities that have expertise and experience in these disease categories and ask them, what are the top five? I know that that sounds very pat and simple, but I it is an enormous amount of work. Well, the golden the rule is pat and simple and a bitch to do. <laughs> yes, it requires that everybody acknowledge that the true leadership voice in the room needs to be the patient community. And I'm not saying one patient, and I'm not saying just a major professional nonprofit patient organization. There is ways to make sure there's representative participation from within a patient community. And the way you know that you've achieved it is when you push and you go to different groups and you really stretch and do the outreach that's necessary. And when you start to hear the same things from all those different groups that you've triangulated, then you've found the representative sample. Mm -hmm. But it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of revenue. And unfortunately, I think we are much more comfortable in funneling all the revenue to academic centers that are well-established in research methodology and everything else, and no disrespect to any of them, but they're not the ones with the experience. Mm -hmm. People like you who are living with decision-making about your condition every day are the ones we should be listening to. Hmm. How's that for a solution? I don't know. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. Tell me more about this membership model of your organization. Are individuals members? Are organizations members? Are communities members? We've set up both that we have set up the membership structure such that organizations can be members, but individuals can also be members. So what about like um, communities? What if Chicago wanted to join? I, I don't, I'm know, not just making that up. No, that's interesting. We haven't come across government agencies or cities, but I think we, there's room for that under the organizational umbrella or even an individual, someone within the Medicaid department in a city or a state mm-hmm were interested in becoming a member, they could join as an individual. And that allows for that because they may not be able to represent their organization Mm -hmm. inside a member, but because of their personal interests or their skill set or things like that, they have a personal interest Mm. in being a member of the organization. So we deliberately made both options. We have corporate, we we have medical centers, we have device companies, we have drug companies. We're hoping to have some insurance companies come to the table, some employer organizations. That's how we roll. That said, we also engage with organizations that aren't necessarily members. But the first thing we did was build an uh, advisory group that 
we brought together experts in the field. So we have five patient organizations at the table who help us with outreach on patient side research that we want to do. They've helped us connect with patient communities and individuals that could feed into this Mm -hmm. research. We have uh, clinicians at the table, both the major guilds. We have employer groups. We have insurers. We have clinicians. All It's like Mm -hmm. a 22-member advisory group. Maybe a couple of them are de facto members of IBI. But they've all shown up every call that we've had where we talk about, this is what we're trying to build. What do we need to be thinking about? What's your perspective about the problem we're trying to solve? If we could do this, if we could do this way of measuring, would it be useful? Yes or no? These are the questions we put to this advisory Mm -hmm. group and they are all in. It's been a real pleasure to be a part of that. But that's another way that IVI, the Innovation and Value Initiative, engages with multiple stakeholders to Mm -hmm. try to bring this multidimensional view of value into the world. You started by saying value is dollars and cents or is quality of life. We're trying to develop models that allow you to look at it from different angles, if you want to think about it that that way. Because it's not a flat proposition. Yes. And it's not a black and white either or. It's got to be an and. So we have to be able to shift to say, if we're looking at the population with major depressive disorder, but what we really want to understand is what are the outcomes and what are the factors that are important to Black women that are living with depression? Can we pivot the model to be able to look at that? The answer should be yes. We should be able to look at different perspectives and different angles on the same question and be able to get an answer. If all we're doing and talking about value is saying A plus B equals X answer, and that's what's used to guide our thinking about everything from benefit design to whether something comes to market, we are really making a huge mistake in my opinion. And no COVID and everything else over the last year that has shown us that people are different, that they respond differently to disease. They mm-hmm. respond differently to interventions. They respond differently to vaccines. Mm-hmm. And if we have not learned as a society that we can't just come up with a one size fits all answer, yeah. then we really have been asleep for the last year. I think that the dilemma year. of the balance of appreciating tremendous diversity, yet thinking about themes that run through that diversity, that you've hit a home run when you look at something from many perspectives and you're hearing similar themes across all those perspectives, then, okay, now we're on to something. This is worth investing in and developing the science of measuring, and then we have all these groups that we can now go and test is brilliant. So how can people, I know you're going to send me stuff so I can put it in the show notes, but say just a little bit about there's five people who are going to listen to this, who are going to go, oh my God, I want to be part of this. What should they? We have a website. It's www.thevalueinitiative.org. And there is information about our membership. We have one of my colleagues, Erica Malik, her 
passion is to help connect people and to bring people into the organization in whatever capacity fits them. So we have lots of opportunity there. We have a newsletter that um, goes out to interested parties. So if you go to our website, you can sign up for that. Even if you're not a member, that's just a general here's what's going on and what we're working on. Here are things that are published. Here's a webinar series that we're getting ready to do, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and then obviously people can contact me directly, but we are on Twitter. We are on LinkedIn. We publish our own series, uh, something called Value Blueprints, which you can access on our website. These are a couple page research briefs that mm -hmm. kind of try to synthesize things that we're learning. Because mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we take very seriously is that this is a big proposition and there's a lot of technical aspects yes. to it that people don't understand. And so one of the things is we want to share learning as we go. So for example, I mentioned the major depressive disorder model. That's a multi-year proposition. It's a big animal, but there are points at which we are publishing what we learn because mm -hmm. it's, it, stands in its own. So for yes. example, we just published a paper about our patient engagement strategy and what we were learning about how to involve patients in our research. That's just as important to the field as the results of what the model that we eventually build. And I would yes. say personally, as a non-economist, it's more important because that's where change happens. When we show people that, yes, it's complex. Yes, it takes a lot of time. Yes, you have to spend a lot of time talking to people, but we're showing how so that there's fewer voices saying, no, it can't be done or it's too complex. That's just not a reason not to do it. It, it just isn't. Not yeah. when we've got people who are living with complex co-occurring health disorders that are not being well-treated, mm -hmm. they're ending up in hospitals or worse. And all we're doing is collecting the statistics about uh, poor outcomes, about suicide, about opiate disorder. These are the metrics that we're spending all our money and energy on when what we should be spending it on is figuring out what kind of treatment, what kind of diagnostics, what kind of interventions can actually stop that outcome from happening. Mm -hmm. That to me will tell me when we've actually learned as mm -hmm. a health system. I think you and I need to have some more conversations that are tactical, strategic. I, would, I, would love I think the really hard part for me is that as an advocate, the first thing, and usually the most time is spent getting people to drink the Kool-Aid. I don't mean that. I don't like how I said that. The Kool-Aid yeah. part is okay. Getting people, it's like people wanting to drink the Kool-Aid. But once people have drunk the Kool-Aid, then it's okay, now what? Drinking the Kool-Aid's important. But actually, but how. what yeah. do you do with that is that's what's really hard. Yeah, one thing we're doing that I didn't mention is that IVI is sponsoring, we have an annual method, what we call a method summit. And we are fortunate enough to have a PCORI engagement grant to help us put this on. And our, our first one was wildly successful. And thank God it happened right before COVID shut us all down. This next one is happening this October. And the focus of it is how do we measure patient perspectives on value? What's important to measure? How do we measure it? And how do we push forward an agenda in which that is a priority? 
not just yeah. for people like okay, me, so, but for payers, for right. pharmaceutical companies, for regulators, for PCORI, for NIH. How do we make those? Can we define that subset, that small set where it's high impact, high relevance, and what we need is high resource? So that's our theme for this fall. I'm interested. Good. I'm so really interested. Yeah. And I, I think there's some huge opportunities with PCORI's reauthorization and their slightly expanded mandate. There's a huge opportunity there to begin to measure things that we haven't heretofore. So the cost impacts, like things like lost wages and caregiver burden, we haven't been able to put numbers on them in a way that's considered valid. We need to do that. That's we a huge opportunity. The same for now NQF has new leadership in Dana Safran. Yes, and she brings great. enormous perspective from her prior experience. There's also an opportunity to make NQF's mandate more relevant to day-to-day decision-making, I think. I so- agree. At the last, this week, was it this week or last week? I can't even remember. This is Monday. So it must have been last week. I was on a, a call and I'm the patient caregiver representative on this standing committee. And my question is, how has this measure we're reviewing either motivated change or informed change? And I think the answer is basically it hasn't. And to me, then it's and we're investing all this time and money in it. If it doesn't inform or motivate, or should I say inspire? But the purpose of quality measurement heretofore has been for two things: accreditation and payment, right? Reimbursement. And that neither one of those things has to do with health outcomes, not first and foremost. <sighs> and that's where I think we have an opportunity. I'm being, I'm really being audacious now. I can't believe I'm saying this on camera. I I think we need to really look at all of these systems that we've built and take a hard look and say, are we really willing to keep throwing all this money and effort at something that materially is not changing lives? That's exactly what you just said. And that's what, frankly, I think is at the heart of health equity is this conversation about we cannot continue to do things the same way we've been doing them because we are poorly serving wide swaths of our own population. And we aren't, we don't even know it in some instances because we're not measuring it. But in many cases, we know exactly how badly we're doing. We're just not willing to do anything. And I think that part of the value conversation needs to be, what are we learning about patient experience and why are we continuing to allow that to be the standard of the status quo? And that's where there's an opportunity in the conversation about value. To be perfectly frank, I do care about the cost of things. I think we have gotten obsessed with the notion that arguing over the cost of something is a proxy for whether value is available to everybody. And I think we are missing the forest for the trees. It's a red herring to focus on the dollars and cents and not say, are we really solving a problem that matters to patients living with this condition? That's the harder question, but that's the question we should be all looking each other in the eye and saying, 
yes or no? Because if the answer is no, then we should undo everything that we've been doing and start over. Let's leave it at that. Thank you so much. It's thank been, you. It's thank you, to Jennifer. Talk with you. We will talk again. I know. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Take care, Danny. So much was said here. Who cares about value and measurement? At one point in my career as a quality management professional, I thought, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. I don't subscribe to that now. You can't do without leadership and will, but we can do without measurement. On the other hand, measurement can help focus, guide adjustment, and make a statement about values. Values as in principles, ethics, priorities, point of view. My activism focuses on person first. Person first starts with understanding individual variation in circumstances, history, preferences, lives of the people making clinical decisions together. That's direct care clinicians, patients, and caregivers. These people make decisions within the context of institutional workflows, as well as community and personal life flows. Person first means hearing the questions and concerns people have about safe living, well-being, and meaningful lives, and then conducting research, developing guidelines, and digitizing solutions to inform their choices. Person first means recognizing that people vary in comfort with uncertainty, understanding of the messiness of science, tolerance of risk, and curiosity and empathy for their decision collaborators. These characteristics impact both the readiness and ability to make decisions together and follow through to implement the decisions eventually made. Jennifer spoke of starting with the person aligning measurement with what people need, problem-solving with the leadership of people making health decisions, balancing cost, quality, and outcomes, and finding commonalities across conditions. Check out IVI, the Innovation and Value Initiatives. Consider joining. I did. Thanks. Thanks to Kayla Nelson, web and social media coach, and Joey Van Leeuwen, musician and arranger. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.